0: It is a pleasure to be with you as we are continuing in this series that we're calling One Nation Under God in which we're tackling a very, very divisive topic, namely the topic of politics and how we as the church live in a world that is divided, a society that's divided, one that's divided by the very politics that we're going to be discussing And so I think it's only right that before we dive into God's word and try to address this subject once more, that we bow our heads and we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you call us to be peacemakers in a divided world. You call us to be dual citizens, both of the United States, but also of the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, when we think about that calling, we realize that that is not an easy one to live out. It's not an easy line to walk. And so as we come before your word this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom, that, Lord, you would speak to us powerfully through your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds not only to understand but to receive the message you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've been going throughout this series, there is a question, a question that many people have been asking, a question that I think many people are hoping that this sermon series is going to address, and that question is, who do I vote for in 2020? And the answer is, I'm not going to tell you, because that's not what really this, uh, this series is all about. There is another question. There's another question that I've heard many people ask. It's a question that really came up in light of last week's message. You see, last week we talked about this reality that God rules the world with both his right and his left hand. That he rules the world through government and through secular authorities. It's his way of establishing justice, of punishing evil and promoting good. That's the reason government was instituted by God. That's why he gives authority to human beings. But we also learned that God rules the world as well through his, through his right hand, through the hand of the church. That it's through the church that the world hears about God's grace and his mercy, about his unfailing and unconditional love. That both of these institutions are gifts given to the world by God. And, and we, we talked about the fact that we can live as dual citizens in both. Citizens of the United States who honor those in authority, but also citizens of the kingdom of God. And the question that people started to ask the moment the service was done last week was, but what happens when one allegiance conflicts with another? What happens when our convictions as Christians seem to clash with the policies and positions of those in power? What happens when our dual citizenship doesn't work so well, doesn't break down so neatly and cleanly? Now, there is a challenge in being a dual citizen. In fact, it's something that even the US State Department acknowledges on its own website. This is what they say about dual citizenship. They said it's important to note the problems attendant to dual nationality. Claims of other countries upon US dual nationals often place them in situations where their obligations to one country are in conflict with the laws of the other. In addition, Their dual nationality may hamper efforts of the U.S. government to provide consular protection to them when they are abroad, especially when they are in the country of their second nationality. Now that's just talking about dual citizenship in the sense of belonging to two different countries. But as I read that, I couldn't help but think about us as Christians in our worlds today, the challenges that come with being citizens in the kingdom of God, but also citizens of the United States. How do we navigate this tension well? When it seems like our allegiances are in conflict, where do we turn? How do we live? How do we do that, especially when we encounter passages like the one that we read this morning from Romans 13, where Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. On the one hand, in In a world where it seems like those in power and authority are governing according to God's will, that doesn't seem like a passage that's too hard to put into practice. But what about when the rulers seem to be bent on the destruction of the church? What happens when those rulers in their very conduct, in their personal character, and in the policies that they pursue seem to stand against the values of the kingdom of God, seem to stand against what Jesus preaches in his Sermon on the Mount? What happens when rulers are rulers like the one that was ruling when Paul wrote this letter? Caesar and the Roman Empire. How do we put this into practice? How can we, on the one hand, honor those in authority, but do so in a way that does not compromise our allegiance to God and to Christ as our king? Well, to answer that very, very difficult question, I want us to go back to a story that comes to us from ancient Babylon. Babylon. A story that we find in the Old Testament, it's the story of a young man named Daniel. You see, Daniel was a citizen of the country of Judah. Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And during his lifetime as a young man, his nation was actually invaded by the country of Babylon was invaded not once but twice. In the first invasion, Daniel along with many of the nobility were forcibly carried into exile where they were made to serve the tyrant who had conquered them, the king Nebuchadnezzar. In the second invasion, Nebuchadnezzar actually brings his armies to Judah and smashes their capital city of Jerusalem flat, destroying the temple of God, carrying off its vessels and putting them in the storehouses of his own temples to his own gods. Daniel finds himself in a very, very difficult situation he is now a citizen of the kingdom of babylon but he also remembers that he is one of god's chosen people here he serves in this government this government of tyranny and injustice this government of violence and wickedness and yet he's supposed to do so as a counselor to this king what will he do well, it's in Daniel chapter 4 that I think we find Daniel walking this line of, bu- of, of dual citizenship incredibly well. For it is in Daniel chapter 4 that we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a dream in which he sees a tree, a tree that, that grows at the very center of the earth whose branches cover the nations and, and comforts them with its shade. And suddenly a holy one appears, an angel, and pronounces judgment on the tree and, and cuts the tree down and says that the one who is the tree will be forced to live in the fields among the wild beasts until he acknowledges that the Lord is king. It's quite obvious to those of us who are readers that this is a, this is a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar is himself the tree. The one who is about to face God's judgment for all of his wickedness. And and Nebuchadnezzar in fear calls his counselor Daniel. Tells Daniel the dream and he says, Daniel, what does this dream mean? And what I find so interesting is how Daniel responds to him. The very first thing that Daniel says in Daniel chapter 4 verse 19 is he says, My Lord... May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He says, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the whole earth, it is you, O king, who has grown and become strong. See, what I find so amazing about Daniel's response is, first and foremost, we learn that somewhere along the way, Somewhere over the course of their relationship, Daniel, this man whose kingdom had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, this man who had been Nebuchadnezzar's slave, suddenly has grown to love Nebuchadnezzar. He actually cares for Nebuchadnezzar, and the moment he hears the dream and understands that it's a dream of judgment upon this king, he doesn't rejoice, but rather says, oh my Lord, I wish that this dream was for somebody else, not for you. But then Daniel goes on faithfully to talk about what the dream means. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that it is God's judgment upon him for all of his pride, for all of his arrogance, for all of the injustice and wickedness that he has perpetrated in the world, for the ways in which he has ignored the weak and the oppressed, the ways in which he has smashed nations. And Daniel comes to the end of his message and he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is a hard message. This is a hard message from a slave to a king. This is a hard message for a king who has a hard time listening to criticism. This is a difficult message for a king who has surrounded himself with counselors who tell him exactly what he wants to hear and when they don't, throws them into fiery furnaces. And yet Daniel speaks this message because it's true. He speaks this message because he knows that this is God's word and that this king has to hear it. Daniel speaks the message, but he does so in love and out of deep concern. He does so out of a desire to help Nebuchadnezzar become a better king, to be a king more reflective of God's will and God's truth, God's justice and mercy. And so in love, he says what has to be said. He tells this king the truth. How is, Abel, how is Daniel able to do that? Well, remember what we talked about last week. We said that both the church and government are both God's hands. The government, his left hand, the church, his right. But remember this, they both belong to God. God. As such, they are both meant to function in the way that God wills them to function. See, Daniel recognizes that his ultimate allegiance is to the God whose hands cover both. Whose hands are meant to guide both. And because of this, Daniel is able to step around in courage and say to the person in power the thing that he least wants to hear. To speak up for God's ways, to a king who obviously is going against them. And the reason why I tell this story is because I think that this is instructive for us. I think that this is a story that beautifully puts on display all of these exhortations to be subject to our governing authorities that we find in the New Testament. It helps us understand not only Romans 13 but that passage from 1 Timothy that we read where it talks about our responsibility to pray for those in authority, recognizing that God desires everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth, that all would be saved through Christ. It acknowledges that when our allegiances seem to be in conflict, we have to remember what it means to be obedient citizens to the ultimate authority, to the God who rules over both church and church and state. You know, somebody who I think speaks most eloquently, most beautifully on this uh, over and against any other theologian of our modern times is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The reason why I like to go to Bonhoeffer is because in Bonhoeffer's lifetime, he actually saw three forms of government. He saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. As a child, his country, Germany, was ruled over by a monarchy, which fell after World War I. Then in that period between World War I and World War II, it was ruled over by a democracy, a a democratic republic with elected officials who were chosen by the people. And then as a young man, he watched as as his country then was ruled by national socialism, by a fascist named Hitler. He had seen it all. And Bonhoeffer being a faithful Christian... A man who was deeply immersed in the scriptures looked around and he saw a church that was bending the knee to the Nazis under the pretense of Romans 13. And he said, I think that we've lost our calling. I think that we've gotten our allegiances mixed up. And in his book on ethics, this is what he writes about the church's role in all of this. He says, the church has the task of summoning the whole world to submit to the dominion of Jesus Christ. She testifies before government to their common master. She knows that it is in obedience to Jesus Christ that the commission of government is properly executed. Her aim is not that government should pursue a Christian policy, enact Christian laws, and so forth. But that it should be true government in accordance with its own special task. Only the church brings government to an understanding of itself. See, what Bonhoeffer is saying is when he says it's not uh, the church uh, shouldn't get the government to pursue a Christian policy or Christian laws, is what he's saying, he's saying that the church should not try to get the government to only pass laws which benefit itself. He says, no, the church's job is to call government to be government in the way that God has instituted to serve, to ensure that it pursues justice for all, that it watches over the marginalized and the weak and the oppressed, that it is a government that passes fair laws which promote the good and punish the evil, which encourage human flourishing. And he says, and it's the church's job when the government forgets that commission to remind it of its commission. It's the church's uh, job to call it out and to help the government remember that it ultimately has power only because God has willed it. And to live out that commission and to pass laws that are in keeping with God's will and purposes. To be true government. I love how he ends that. He says, only the church brings government to an understanding of itself. Our desires that our government would be the best kind of government. The best kind of government is the one that is functioning in the ways that God has ordained. Bonhoeffer is saying, that is our job. That's our responsibility. And like Daniel, that means that sometimes we have to speak truth to power. We speak the truth in love. We do so out of a desire to serve. But we never fail to speak it because we recognize our common master. That is our responsibility as people of faith. That is where our allegiance lies. That helps us to live out our calling faithfully because what Bonhoeffer understood, what Daniel understood, what St. Paul understood is that the very, very best way to be in obedience to our rulers, the very, very best way to be good subjects is by helping them become the very best form of government that they are called to be, to become the very best leaders that God would have them be. We do that in a variety of practical ways. We do so in how we vote and who we choose to be uh, elected to office. We do so when we write letters to our uh, our representatives and our officials, encouraging them to carefully consider the policies that they're putting forth. We do so when, yes, we get involved in causes and speak up on behalf of the voiceless. But we also do so when we get involved in our local communities by serving those in need, by serving those in government, by encouraging them to pursue the very best. We do so by entering into a relationship with our elected officials and calling them to serve in the ways that God has called them and commissioned them to serve. That's what it means to truly be obedient citizens. Obedient citizens first to God, but to live out that obedience in loving service and honest truth-telling to those in power. I love how uh, one of my former professors, Dr. Joel Bierman, talks about how this plays out in practical ways. In his book, Holy Citizens, this is what he says about how a Christian walks that line well. He says, God's will made clear in his law and taught in scripture is unwavering. The protection of human life matters more than securing human comfort. The pursuit of justice matters more than the pursuit of a desirable standard of living. Compassion shown to the marginalized or weak matters more than national self-interest and prosperity. These are simple standards that should be evident to anyone attending to the teaching of Christ and his church. And it should also be evident that when God's law is directing the Christians' voting and further political activity, then it is all but impossible that any single party or social action group will align perfectly or even substantially with the Christians' own objectives and standards. A powerful articulation of what it means to live this out in practical ways. And what it means is it means that when we get involved in politics as the church, we will always go against the grain, no matter which party we're a part of. No matter which social justice cause we decide to take up, there are certain things that we are going to agree with and affirm and applaud and celebrate and work for, but there are certain things in any political party and in any social action group that we as Christians, living out our prophetic calling, are going to have to name and to call as in violation of God's will. But we do not do so from a position of judgment. We do so from a position of loving service and submission out of a desire to see any party, any governing official, any social action group more fully reflect the will of God, the God who is love, the God who brings justice for all, the God whom we serve. And the only way that we can do that is by recognizing the reason why we long for this so much. I don't know if you've really ever thought about it, but I was really wrestling with this Have you ever thought about the reason why in all of our stories we love to tell tales of good kings? Why it is that our very, very best fairy tales are filled with wise and compassionate rulers. I think it's because there's something deep within the human heart that longs to see our earthly governments reflect the rule and reign of God. There's something within us that cries out and says, this is the way the world is supposed to be. Something that desires to see the very best be brought forth from those who are chosen to lead. And who calls it out with love and a deep heart cry. I think it's because ultimately we long for the reign of the kingdom of God. And as we wait for that reign to be brought in its fullness, we earnestly pray and desire that our rulers would reflect it. It's because we're looking for a day when we will see that kingdom brought in its fullness. We're looking for the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Where the prophet writes, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We long for our true king. We long for Jesus Christ, the one who alone had all power and authority and yet wielded it with beautiful grace who was mighty and strong, who himself commanded legions of angels and yet extended mercy to the least of these. The one who preached and proclaimed justice and yet at the same time gave forgiveness to those who fell short of it. Our ultimate desire is that any authority would more and more reflect his kingdom And then we would recognize that he came not just to save us, but to save them as well. Do we believe those words from 1 Timothy, that God's desire is that all would be saved? If so, I think that that is going to inform how we engage with government. It's going to inform how we speak to and encourage our elected officials. It's going to inform our activism. It's going to inform our participation. It's going to inform our voting because we recognize that is our ultimate calling. That as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So I think it is only right that we find ways to encourage our leaders, to pray for them, to bless them, to encourage them. As you leave today, you're actually going to have an, in, an invitation to do just that. To enter into a relationship with your governing officials, to enter into a relationship with your men and women in uniform. As you walk out of this space today, you're gonna be handed a sheet by our ushers, which gives you an opportunity to do one of several things. To first write a thank you card to someone who is in elected office here in the village of Lyle, to say thank you for serving. To offer encouragement and let them know that you are praying for them, maybe even to share a Bible verse. Kids have an opportunity to actually pick up a coloring sheet that, that will be colored and then be delivered to our firefighters and our policemen and women. You also have an opportunity to purchase supplies for care packages, which are gonna to go to troops overseas. The reason why we are doing that as a church is because we wanna live out this calling well. We wanna thank our elected officials for our serving and remind them of their calling the calling that's given to them by God. And in all of this, we want to be a church that prays for them out of a deep desire that, yes, we would indeed live peaceful lives, but more importantly, that all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ.